Walked Right Out of the Machinery Chapter 7 It's a relief to get out of the noise and pressure of the infirmary, and he lets himself wander, not thinking about where he's going. It takes him a few minutes to notice that he's not even the one at the wheel, the snake steering him through the tunnels, searching for a place where the crowds are less dense. As soon as he notices, he had not been conscious of it, had not intended it. He's back in control, nearly tripping over his feet like the old joke about the centipede, who walked fine until someone asked him how he managed to coordinate all those legs. And then he said, Huh, I've never thought about it before, and could never put one foot in front of the other from that day on. He starts walking again, just to prove he can. Same cues, same memories of the base. Easy enough to guess at where they'll have started the new tunnels. He keeps heading away from the crowds until he's found his way out to the raw edge of the base, where the new walls are still growing, rock dissolving and reforming into crystal in front of his eyes. There's a shallow niche in the wall a few meters before the moving end of the tunnel, ready to be grown out into a room if needed. He curls up into it. It doesn't provide much cover, but anyone coming round the corner won't see him right away. The crystals spike into his back, still warm from the chemical reactions that structured them, but he can ignore them for a while. It's not the body that's tired. And, at least here, it's quiet. He imagines the noise draining out of his head, the static out of his blood. Down the plug hole and gone. He doesn't want to think about any of what's happened today, yesterday. If he starts thinking about it, he'd have to think about not knowing who dialed the address for this place, being too focused on what needed doing to care. And before that, getting thrown out of the strategy meeting. And what happened after that? The fight. There are ripples still spreading out in his mind and he doesn't want to think about them. Quantum thingy, don't ever open the box and look inside, because then you've got a 50% chance of having a dead cat on your hands, and who wants that? Just goes to show that some people shouldn't be allowed to keep pets. Minutes pass, or hours they said that you were here, but I did not believe it. Her voice is very soft, as if she's afraid of disturbing him, or afraid to raise her voice at all, still learning to speak out loud. He can't look up, 
Not at first. Not yet. Feels like he's been shot in the chest, and they didn't even give him a blindfold and a last cigarette. It's been so long, trying not to think about her. But that's the snake, not him, and he fucking resents it. Resents being dragged along by someone else's emotions. But he can't stop feeling it. She looks different now. Still urchin-faced, fair hair cropped brutally short, but taller somehow. Less immaculate in the sand-colored tokra uniform instead of the costume Baal dressed her in, black and glossy as a beetle's carapace, jointed like a doll, a parody of armor designed to make her look more vulnerable. Shalon, he says, the snake says, voice dropping into that alien resonance, jerking back from control as soon as he hears himself, startled by the longing he hears in his own voice. She steps closer, cautiously, as if she's approaching a dangerous animal, and his skin prickles, Nakwada in her blood. It shouldn't be a surprise. Unblended humans don't remain with the Tok'ra. He shouldn't be surprised. He wonders who is watching and judging him from behind her eyes, seeing her memories of him. Hates the doubt coiling in the host's mind. The guilt. Whose guilt? He only did what was necessary for the sake of the mission. He never forced her, never made false promises, never put her at any more risk than he needed to in order to achieve the designated objectives. He was kind to her, in small ways, enough to win her gratitude. Slaves are easy to suborn, and only asked for information in return. Nothing the fucking snakes won't do, is there? He can't move. But then, she's there beside him, dropping to her knees on the floor. She takes his hand in hers and presses her lips against his knuckles, cool and smooth, against bruised, scraped skin. Then stands again, just as quickly. He doesn't reach for her when she steps back. You saved my life, she says. I cannot ever repay you. Gratitude, not love, never love. The host reads it in her voice, and he can't help hearing it. Not even gratitude he deserves. He would have left her there did leave her there, would have never returned if he had remained sane. Inappropriate attachments, his hosts, not his, not his, cannot be allowed to jeopardize a mission, not when thousands of lives may depend on the information obtained. It was the right choice. He still believes that. She stands there, 
waiting. So you... Let them put a snake in your head? Took a symbiote? He manages. I owe the Tok'ra my life. I could not contribute so much to the cause if I was not blended with Shuresh. No hesitation. A cryptoanalysis, devoted to the cause. He remembers the man who was Shuresh's last host. He had gray eyes, not blue. Her skin is still so pale. He remembers seeing it black with the bruises, the marks of Baal's fingers left wrapped around her throat. He wants to ask if the Tok'ra pressured her, if they told her that she had to take a symbiote if she was to stay with them, but her smile is easy and radiant, and he has no right to ask. He remembers that, too, the rush of energy in the new blending as it unfolds, as you discover each other, self, the wonder so many new hosts feel, drenched in health, knowledge, and power. The memories have never tasted bitter before. Shresh must know by now. They've been here for hours, and rumors spread fast on bases. Must have heard what they are. Broken. Crazy. A public embarrassment to the Tok'ra. He doesn't know why she would have come to look. Why did you... He runs out of words and waves a hand at her, at where she stands. Why did you come here? Why bother? There's no scorn in her eyes, only pity, which hurts worse. I wanted you to know what you have done for me, that I will continue the fight in your name. As if he's dead, a non-person, someone to be mourned with the fallen, and he can't say that she's wrong. She looks like a stranger, like someone he's never seen before. She is a stranger, he insists. Someone he'd never met before he found himself walking back into a Gua'uld fortress to try and save her. All because the fucking snake had a fucking crush. But he knows how she kisses, Practice tricks giving way to something soft and startled. He knows how she tastes. Even the tug of attraction feels different in this body, filtered through the biases of this nervous system. Everything is different. Wrong. These fingers have never touched her, never curled inside her. And he is half himself, half someone else else. His former host would have had the words, would have translated him into eloquence, made something graceful out of everything clumsy and guilty and mute. How can you be Kanan? She was different, he remembers. 
folly to believe it, to single out one abused, docile human slave over another. But there was a sweetness in her, something that Baal had not yet been able to touch. She never knew he was anything other than a minor Guawuld courtier. They played their role well. She probably assumed she was spying for one of Baal's rivals, if she even dared speculate that much. Baal liked his pets wide-eyed and terrified, the velvet quiver of prey caught and hypnotized by the predator's gaze, afraid even to flinch, until he became bored with them and turned his attention to newer entertainment. He knows she believed Baal was her god, even as she betrayed him, certain that she could never escape his power, looking back over her shoulder as she ran away. Remembers how she stumbled back, retreating to the back of her cell, afraid to be rescued, afraid of him, of them. No, he'll stop us. He must have seemed angry, then angry because there was no time. Of course she's different, Skippy. She's finding out who she might be for the first time in her life, now that she's not a Guauld sex toy. He told her there would be no repercussions if she ever said no to him, if she didn't want him. He doesn't know if she believed him. Can't bear how he looks through the host's eyes, like something he isn't, and he has no clue what to say to her. This stranger he never met before he dragged her out of a cell. Well, thanks for stopping by. Great to hear that the snake in the head deal's working out for you. They would have broken sooner or later, told him, given you up, to buy a few heartbeats when we weren't the ones under the knife. Don't be grateful. Please, don't be grateful. I'm glad, he says, finding his voice because the snake can't. It sounds gravelly, and he clears his throat, swallows. Glad you're okay. He wouldn't have done it. Not if he was himself, because he'd never met her. So Baal has a lotar, all the system lords do. The Guauld have millions of slaves, and he tries not to think about it most days. But he knows about being left behind, the wump of rotors as the chopper takes off without you, all the people he's failed the lying promises he's mouthed on government orders. We'll come back. We'll send reinforcements. Soon. At least someone gets out of this clusterfuck okay. He can't, won't, begrudge her that. She smiles at him, that open, happy smile he's never seen before. Thank you.
And then she turns and is gone, footsteps soundless on the crystal floor, as if she was never there at all. A dream, a hallucination. He's crazy enough. In his head, the snake insists he was never stupid enough to believe she loved him back. Then he grinds the heels of his hands into his eyes, hard. At first, he can't tell who's in control of the body. It's been slewing to and fro. But this is him, now. He snaps his fingers to prove it, and scrubs his hands over his face again, but his eyes won't stop stinging, and his chest hurts a deep-down tightness that the snake automatically tries to fix, as if it's physical pain. Wetness against his palms. He's been through a lot of weird shit over the years, but never anything quite as freaky as someone else crying through his eyes. The snake's not controlling the body, not trying to, but it's leaking through regardless, helpless and humiliating, hot, furious, shameful tears of loss. He didn't even know the snake could cry, didn't think he was the type, and he isn't, won't be. Ridiculous to be weeping over something so trivial, for something he already knew. When everything is broken, so many of his sisters and brothers dead, trapped and killed like vermin. When he is lost, host and self twisted together like a bad graph, a transplant half-rejected, can't separate and won't ever heal. It goes through him in a rush, a tidal wave of emotions carrying him along with it, even as part of him feels distant and embarrassed. The snake can't bear showing so much, and can't stop. And he hates seeing so much, like blundering in on someone else naked, seeing things you have no right to see, and really didn't want to see anyway. It's the bad kind of tears, he can tell. The kind you get when people who don't cry, cry. Unable to breathe in case it turns into a sob. Unable to let go, and unable to keep it together. He wraps his arms around his ribcage and tries to hold on to it as if he can keep it boxed in, ease the ache that way. Finally, he mutters, Cut it out. Without letting himself think about it, he rubs at the back of his neck, ignoring the old scar. A stupid thing to be doing, as if, like the way you'd pat someone's arm when you don't really know them, awkward and distant. Not because you... Because you want them to stop. That's all. Cut it out. 
from his corner. He can hear things quiet down as the base settles into something like a night shift. Not that things ever stop on Tok'ra bases. There's always more work that needs to be done. Always the cause, and too few people to serve it. And there are probably only a handful of people here who need to sleep. But some of the Tok'ra will choose to meditate or do light work while the hosts sleep, and the Jaffa will have to kill no reem. He ventures out of his hiding place carefully. There is a small antechamber full of pools, and he leans his elbows on the rim of one for a while, then splashes water over his face. It's a disconcertingly warm and salty, making him think of bodily fluids, amniotic fluids. The ornamental pools are a luxury. They permit themselves. It's been millions of years since symbiotes could survive in water without life support. Survive without hosts. But still, the presence of water calms, soothing old instincts and anxieties, helping prepare the mind for the disciplines of equanimity and self-control. Egeria, goddess of birth, goddess of fountains. Daniel's lectures again. Mother, redeemer, daughter, wife of Ra. Again, with the way too much information about snake sucks. But the thought's half-hearted. He swipes a wet hand over his face, trying to rinse away the day's blood and grime, the stiff, prickly residue of tears that aren't his, then gazes into the lights at the bottom of the pool, trying to think. It will be a good time to leave. The thought hangs there. It should be shocking, and yet it's not. As if it's been there for a while, waiting to be spoken aloud, thought out loud, something dreaded for so long that, in the end, it comes as a relief. Get it over with. They don't need him here anymore. He can't go back to Earth. The Alpha site is smoking rubble, and he sure as hell can't stay here. Even the thought of it, Crowded all the time, skin crawling with the Nakwada in everyone's blood, surrounded by snakes, makes him claustrophobic. They cannot fit, cannot belong here. He no longer belongs among the Tok'ra, any more than the host can be to Ari. And the pain is worst under the eyes of his sister brothers. All the people who know him for the person he was. The person he should be. Better to leave. There's a merciful clarity to the realization. Through the static and the noise. It feels as necessary as oxygen, as water, the way the first realization did. Go back for her. 
Of course you should go back for her. Of course you should leave. So simple, you wonder why you didn't see it before. Wait until everything's quiet, then walk away, and no one will see you go. Not like he hasn't done it before. He takes an indirect route to the gate, circling the perimeter of the base, ghosting past open doorways. He'd rather not have to say goodbye to anyone. Better to make it quick and clean. Carter will deal better with the idea of him leaving if it's a done deal, if he's not there when she does it. And Teal'c will understand. The base lockdown is fortuitous. It will inhibit pursuit once his absence is discovered, but it won't make it too difficult to leave. He's already thinking about the encrypted panels sealing off the gate, Breaking them will be slower if they've rotated the code protocols since he was last here, but locks have never held him for long. They'll have posted guards, too, but if he can take a Zachnik Cattell off one of them, it should be easy from there on. This is what he was trained for. He skirts round the sentries, and into one of the narrow tunnels, the emergency fallback routes to the gate. He didn't expect to see Toran leaning against the wall with his back against the code pad, frowning at the door. It stops him cold for a second, enough time for Toran to raise his head and see him. There's no surprise in Torin's face, only a grim weariness. Blood-stained, sleeves pushed up past his elbows, he looks almost human. I had thought you would attempt to leave. The only question was when. He wonders how long Torin's been waiting for him. Gonna try and stop me? He shifts his weight and gauges the odds. Torin has a zat tucked into his belt, but hasn't reached for it yet. From what the snake remembers of their respective combat training, he can take Torin in a fight, easily. But something inside him twists at the idea of raising his hand against his brother, his friend. He has not yet fallen so low. Toran's eyes bore into him as if he can read his thoughts. He shakes his head. We will not keep you prisoner against your will. But he doesn't move out of the way, and the pause that follows carries the weight of a but. Wait for it. Wait for it. But you are still Tok'ra. You can still serve. How? The snake's the voice. He'd be annoyed, except that he's pretty sure that it wasn't on purpose. And he hears, tastes, the desperate hope under the words. I have a proposition. Why, of course you do. He nods fractionally, just to convey, go on, I'm listening. 
He doesn't like the sense he's getting of this, but it sure is hell familiar. The Ta'ari ship, Toran says. Prometheus, it has already provoked direct retaliation from the system lords, and it will not stop its attacks. Familiar opening gambit, laying out what he already knows, step by step, a prelude to something. We cannot survive another such attack. Had it not been for your actions, many more of us would have died today, and if the system lords declare the protected planet's treaty void and attack Earth. Toran smiles that brief, mirthless smile of his. No need to finish that sentence. Earth has a few cobbled-together prototype fighters, and nothing else. If the system lords know, or guess, that the Asgard are otherwise occupied, if they come in force, then Earth's screwed. If they're lucky, the gold will try and land ground troops instead of nuking the place from orbit. It might be worth occupying the planet for the prestige of taking back the first world. Most of the population might survive, if they're lucky. For values of lucky that include life as a gold slave. And he wonders what Toran's host thinks of all this, of the conversation his mouth and his face are having without his involvement. Pit the system lords against Earth, and the person who benefits most of all is Anubis, and his allies with him, Osiris, Zimbachna, Baal. Cut to the chase, you bastard. Tell me where this is going. Thoran must have decided he's kept him twisting on the hook long enough because he says, The Ta'ari will never authorize a mission to destroy Prometheus. He wants to argue, but shit. Hammond would get it. Get that taking Prometheus off the map may be the only way to avoid a direct attack on Earth. Postpone open war with the Gould until they've got a fighting chance. But this'd go outside the SGC. Need presidential authorization. And... He doesn't know. Trying to convince the government pencil pushers to let you blow up a multi-billion dollar project? Yeah, right. Good luck with that. And the NID have their hooks in deep. They're already fighting a crackdown. Taking out Kinsey was just the beginning. And if the rogue cells are convinced that this is the best way to fight the gold, if they're seriously that dumb, then odds are that it's what the rest of them think in secret. Shit, shit, shit. Best case scenario, the mission gets authorized after months of wrangling, which is time they don't have. His mouth is dry. Nor will the Tok'ra Council 
risk instructing operatives to attack a Ta'ari vessel. Not openly. Yeah, just as he thought. This is Black Ops. Been there, done that. Mission off the books in the Banana Republics and chilly Eastern European states. Explosives bought with cash funneled through a string of different shell companies. Machine guns and Coca-Cola crates. While the men in government suits hold up their clean, clean hands. The familiarities almost comforting. Torian's hand dips into a pocket and comes out holding a flat, lozenge-shaped crystal, which the snake recognizes as a data chip. He balances it between his fingers, displaying it, but not offering to hand it over. Yet. This will override the access codes for the gate room here he says, still casual, as if he's merely providing a point of information. Fucker's probably enjoying this. It also contains a requisition form for a cargo ship at Karishnent, and for an Aquita-enhanced explosive device, which should be more than sufficient to destroy a ship of Prometheus's size, if placed close to the hyperdrive. He'd mean, oh, it pisses him off that he's already thinking about it. It'd mean cutting the timing fine to plant the bomb in the heart of the ship and still get clear before it blows. Too long a countdown, and the NID could find it before it detonates. Too short, and he gets to go boom, too. But then... They're probably not expecting him to come back anyway, are they? What Torrin's offering isn't just a mission. It's the chance of a useful death. Naturally, Thoran says, all irony. If this should come to light, I will deny any involvement. Oh, naturally! he echoes. Easy enough to deny, too. After all, everyone knows that he and the snake are crazy. Easy enough to believe that they forged a data chip and escaped alone. A loose cannon. The ultimate deniable agent. Be tricky to find the ship, he says, thinking out loud. One needle in a galactic haystack. He'd bet good money that they're still using some of the NID's old off-world bases. But even if you could narrow it down to a solar system, solar systems aren't the tinker toy orreries that people imagine. Plenty of room to hide a battleship tucked away in an asteroid belt or behind a moon. Toran nods, and he wants to protest that he hasn't agreed yet, but doesn't. Perhaps one of the Ta'ari personnel here may have information on how the ship might be tracked. As if he's discussing the weather. And that's an ugly suggestion, because any intel about the Prometheus is classified to high heaven. It needs a security clearance he doesn't have anymore. 
intel, the SGC won't ever give to the Tok'ra, but that somebody might let slip to a face they still trust. Hell, maybe this is why Toran allowed them onto the base in the first place. How long has he been preparing for this? Something must show in his expression, because Toran gives another curt nod. Give it thought. There is no need to inform me of your decision. You may leave as and when you see fit. He doesn't realize that he's holding out a hand until the data chip is pressed into it, sharp, smooth edges against his palm. Torian turns to go, but stops and looks back at him, hesitating. The first time he's seen Torian hesitate, and grabs his arm and pulls him into an awkward half-hug, undoubtedly meant for the snake only. Be well, my brother. A fierce whisper breathed against his ear. Deniable. And then he's gone. He slumps back against the wall where Toran was leaning a few minutes ago, and wraps his fingers round the crystal in his hand. Hey, he doesn't have to go on the mission at all. He could skip out of here and never bother to pick up the ship or the nuke. Go on the run again, lose himself so well that no one will ever find him. Torian's gambling that he can be bought with the promise of duty and honor, and he has a spiteful impulse to throw it back in his face. Prove him wrong. Torian is resting all his hopes on the chance that he knows his friend well enough to predict what he'll choose, even in this strange new host. Even broken. Playing chess. Willing to send a friend to his death to win the game. But Torian is no more ruthless than he would be with himself. Knows that his brother would ask for nothing less. Hell. The tough part will be locating the ship. And he wishes he could kid himself that he's not committing himself to anything yet. Just thinking about it. But he can't help knowing what the snake knows. The decision's already made. Carter was up to her eyeballs in the x 303 specs. If there's a way to trace it, she'll know it. I'm sorry, sir. I don't think I should be telling you this. Carter's military born and bred. The last person who'd break those rules and he's pretty sure he could get her to do it anyway. Walk in there and be Colonel O'Neill again. Be Jack. She wants so badly to believe that he's okay, that he can work this out and adapt the way Jacob did, because it'll mean that she made the right choice, didn't screw him over forever. The relief will get him a long way. There is a part of her that still thinks of him as her CO, 
That always will. Easy to push those buttons. And for all Carter's big, shiny brain, there are things she's not so smart about. And he knows damn well that one of those things is him. Easy to suborn. Jesus. He rubs a hand over his mouth, sucks in a deep breath, thinks of Carter in the gate room with her team. Satterfield, hugging Malik, solemn green, smiling. Her kids. Somehow, she became a leader when his back was turned, and it hurts like hell, but he's so fucking proud of her that he can barely breathe. She made them into a team when he wouldn't have thought she could do it. Not his, Carter. And now one of her kids is dead, and another probably has a snake in her head, and Carter should have had a command of her own years ago, except that he didn't know if she was ready to handle that yet, having to watch her people being killed and injured, all the things you can't stop but have to carry anyway. Or maybe he was the one who didn't want to watch that weight fall on her. However it goes down, she'll be guilt-tripping herself, trying to work out a way that she could have done better, undermining herself. And he could undermine her, too. Carter's smart. She'll understand the implications. She'll know exactly what he's asking her to do. And he could get her to do it anyway. And it would break her. In his head, the snake is thinking. He finds her keeping vigil in one of the small chambers past the infirmary. The archway frames her, sitting on the floor with her arms wrapped around her knees. Beside her, Satterfield lies curled on her side, a thermal blanket covering her, as if she's one of the wounded. Her eyes are closed, but her eyelids twitch as though she's racing through dreams. Memories of blendings. The body comatose while it, I, you, heal. Neural filaments weaving selves together. That first flood of information. So vast the mind must turn inward to integrate it without drowning. They both look very small. Too fragile to take this weight. Green's on his way out. He gives him a nervous, Sir, and a wide berth. Must have been talking to Carter. Good sign, if she's the one they go to for support. If she isn't cutting them off. Carter looks up at the sound, and something crosses her face when she sees him, before she pulls herself together and says, Hey, sir. He loiters in the doorway for a moment before he can bring himself to announce, Snake wants to talk to you, waving a hand in the direction of his own head by way of explanation. 
It comes out truculent and awkward, as if it's nothing to do with him. He is just the messenger. It's not what she was expecting, but Carter's game. She nods and says, Sure, I mean, okay. This time, it's like stepping back, letting the snake slide past him into control of the body. He's getting used to the adjustments, feeling his spine straightening, posture shifting. But he can see the changes reflected in Carter's face, better than a mirror. Different when it's someone you know. For all the time she's spent with her dad and the other Tok'ra, there are some things you never quite get used to. And watching a stranger move in behind the face of someone you know has got to be one of them. She's been through it with Jacob, and she's going to go through it again with Satterfield. And now... Hi, Kanan, she says, a little freaked out, but trying to be cool. It's the voice she uses for talking to small children and big dogs. The sound of someone trying not to make any sudden movements while she looks around for someone better qualified to take over. Major Carter, the snake answers. He clasps his hand behind his back, then hesitates at a loss. Apparently, he's already run out of his limited supply of conversation. As far as he can see, the snake doesn't actually have a game plan here, but he's willing to give him enough rope. Carter needs to see who, what, she's dealing with here, and she doesn't have any emotional ties to the snake. His eyes keep going back to Satterfield, and he can feel the snake's curiosity. He takes a few steps closer, tilting his head to look at her face. Carter stiffens when he can see her try to make herself relax. Yeah, he'd be twitchy too, watching that cold alien gaze sizing up someone he cared about. He is only curious, but he refrains from going closer and settles himself on the floor a safe distance away cross-legged, on the same level, less threatening that way, perhaps. He's never been good with humans, with pretense, the supple and warm-blooded arts of manipulation and lies. He always has relied on his host to fill in the gaps and play the minor Gua'uld better than he ever could. It is a strange sensation to be here with a mission objective, but unarmed, empty-handed, as himself. If the symbiote is weakened by injury, he tells her, and he sees the tiny jump the snake doesn't, the way she flinches at the sound of his altered voice, then it is possible that both may die. Damn, Skippy, Hell of a conversation starter there. Did you study at this? But it is important that she should understand, should not be lulled with false hopes. If the blending fails, if the two together are not strong enough, then the dying symbiote will drag the host down too, too weak to separate or spare her. 
Carter has a peculiar look on her face. I know, I've done this before, with my dad, but thank you. Thank you for telling me, I think. A quick, rueful grimace. His gaze slides back to Satterfield again. Rare, nearly unknown, for someone to choose to become a host, except to save their own life, or because they had no other choices open to them. He wonders what naivete or perversity drove her to it. Do you ever stop being an asshole? She did it because she cared about one of you, and she didn't want anyone else to die if she could help it. Can you get any of that? Then the snake surprises him. He feels the words form in his mind a fraction of a second before they're spoken, like an echo in advance. Malik's host. What was his name? It catches her off guard, and her mouth wobbles, one corner going up and then down, as if she's trying to smile and not succeeding. Plengian, she says, and then, Pell, he hated that name. He didn't... It was a long time before he would talk to any of us. It was difficult for him. I don't know why, but... He was afraid of a lot of things. I think Malik tried to protect him. He nods carefully. Something he was bound to ask. A duty. All this time, and he has never heard the snake think of his own host, former host, by name. As if he doesn't have an identity of his own. Just bodies to them. But you don't think of yourself, other self, by name. No need to, and they're always there. Sense of self sharp and wordless and present as a remembered taste, as a smell, to make your heartstrings crack. Salt fierce and water fluent. The name is an afterthought, there for the taking if he reaches for it, but he doesn't reach. The snake has a right to some secrets, too. And it's Carter's turn to surprise him. Dad, Selmek, she corrects herself. Selmek said the symbiote's name was Zatel. I wondered if you knew him? Her? Uh, sorry, I don't know which. She trails off. A shrug, shoulders hitched up and allowed to drop like a puppet's. Zatel has mostly had female hosts. Gender is a concept borrowed from human minds and human language, like so much else, fitting awkwardly, yet deeply felt nonetheless. But you knew her, Carter says. Another shrug. He has never been especially close to Zatel. Forget skills, plural. He's starting to wonder if this snake has a single social skill. Can you tell me what she's like? A simpler question. 
A scholar and an archivist, for centuries, Zatel has studied records of the technologies of past cultures. Carter frowns, the way she does when she's trying to puzzle out a problem that's refusing to cooperate. He feels as if he's getting to see what she's like when he's not around. Not that she doesn't know he's still there, a silent observer, but the snake is the one she's talking to. But what sort of person is she? He feels muscles in his forehead tighten and furrow, the snake frowning as he sorts through memories, wondering what Carter wants to know, what kind of answer she is looking for. Oh, for crying out loud, she needs to know what sort of person Satterfield's going to be spending the rest of her life with. If they make it, that they'll be okay together. But the snake doesn't take the prompt, concentrating on his own memories, digging for words of his own to offer. Finally, he says, Zatel is dedicated to the cause. Such a shining recommendation, but it's the highest praise he knows how to give. And he hears in it what the snake means, dedicated to the fight, not only against the Gua'uld, but against what the Gua'uld are, to being Tok'ra, living in partnership. He wonders if Carter is going to get that. A good person the snake says slowly, then kind. Not a word he'd expected from the snake somehow. Then, I hope that your Lieutenant Satterfield will not regret her choice. Carter nods, and he gets it then. She wasn't just asking about Satterfield and Zatel. She was asking about the snake and himself. Ask Skippy to tell you about someone else, and he'll tell you about himself without knowing it. Whatever memories of him Jolinar left in her mind, she needs to know for herself. A stranger. A person in her own right, with her own agenda. Not Jolinar's ghost, or Jolinar's guilt. Somehow, when he wasn't paying attention, the snake took the data crystal out of his pocket. Now he turns it over in his hands, closes his fingers around it until the edges bite into his skin, then unfolds his hand and looks at it again, as if he's expecting it to have changed, like someone unsuccessfully trying to copy a magic trick. Then he looks up directly at Carter. The ship, he says. Prometheus. How might it be located? He sees her get it, can almost see the gears in her brain whir as she puts it all together, in the breath before she says, Oh, God. She knows the snake's not just asking her to do something that could get her court-martialed, to hand over ultra-classified information to someone who's not only not part of the program, he's not even part of the same species anymore. 
He's asking her to send them on a suicide mission. He knows she knows why, too. Because of Prometheus, two of her team are dead, and one is curled on the floor next to her, in limbo between life and death. SGC people she knows and has worked with have died today. Tok'ra, who Jolinar would have remembered, too. And Earth is hanging in the balance. Does the colonel... Is he... The snake nods, a sharp downward jerk of his chin. He wonders if she'll ask to hear it direct from him. But it turns out that she can do the math on that one, too. Yes, of course he is, she mutters, and for a moment she just sounds annoyed. Then her hands fly up to cover her face, and she leans forward into them. He can hear her, drawing deep, controlled breaths. Finally, she takes her hands away, swiping the back of one quickly across her eyes, and settles them in her lap. People I care about seem to keep ending up with snakes in their heads, she blurts. Then, sorry, I didn't mean... Apologizing to the snake. Apologizing to the fucking snake and his heart breaks for her. I used to be jealous sometimes, she says. Of dad, of... I mean, on Jolinar... I was so busy fighting the whole time. I never got to know what it was like. And I always... Stupid. Selfish of me, I know. The snake watches her silently, head cocked to one side. It makes him feel like a voyeur. Then Carter looks down at her hands, draws in another breath, and releases it. And when she looks up again, she has her command face on. Resolute. The hyperdrive in Prometheus runs on Noquita, she says. The gold hyperdrives all use Noquita, we think. Noquadruria is very unstable. Even if they've managed to account for the instability enough to get reliable control, it should still give off a unique radiation signature. If you can scan the correct frequencies, it should, theoretically, be possible to track it. You won't be able to follow it through hyperspace, obviously, but... She breaks off and gives him a strange look, and he realizes that she was waiting for an interruption that didn't come. Waiting for him to wave his hands around in protest and ask for an explanation in words of one syllable or less. But the snake is listening intently. All the techno jargon fitting into neat slots in his mind, and he watches Carter get it, watches her press her lips together before she squares her shoulders and carries on. The snake's memorizing all of it, so he doesn't bother listening, just watches. There are little tremors in her face, but her voice is steady, her back straight. Her choice to take this on her shoulders.
tempered steel, he thinks. Not brittle. It'll wear her down. Erode her, millimeter by millimeter, over the years. The way it does even to the best. Especially to the best. But she won't crack. He doesn't plan on saying goodbye to Teal'c. It's never been about words with them, and he knows Teal'c will get it anyway. Words have always been too flimsy in the face of Teal'c's generous silence. You can joke around, sound off to wash him arch an eyebrow at your antics, but the real things don't need to be said. But on his way to the gate, dodging past an archway, he hears a familiar voice and stops. Just for a moment, he tells himself, just to listen. Everyone's eyes are on the speaker. No one will look out into the corridor without a reason. At first, he thinks it's a Jaffa meeting. Pratak steps forward as Teal'c finishes addressing the group. They've even got a flame burning in some kind of metal sensor, like an improvised candle, like ricocheting off the facets of the wall crystals. But then he notices Cora, leaning against the wall, hands shoved deep in the pockets of his coat, and Jalen standing very still, her face unreadable. Not just Jaffa. He can see Teal'c watching the Tok'ra in the crowd, too. Monitoring the responses of Bratak launches into some Jaffa tale that presumably relates in some way to whatever they're discussing, although he's damned if he can tell how. Teal'c looks tired when no one is watching him, weary in a way he's never seen before. The Jaffa are getting their empowerment on, and you'd never guess it, from the expression on Teal'c's face, and it's what he's been fighting for all along. But it figures. The guy was trained from birth to serve his god. He could command armies, as long as he had faith that someone above him gave the final orders, took the responsibility. No wonder he was so eager to believe that Kaitano was the Jaffa Messiah if it meant he could put his revolution into someone else's hands. But now, it's all on Teal'c's shoulders, and Teal'c will do it damn well, he has no doubt. He's always suspected that Teal'c might secretly be the smartest out of all of them. Still, heavy weight for anyone to carry. It's not a surprise when Teal'c looks up and sees him. No. Them. Teal'c's looking at both of them, and he doesn't know how he can tell, but he can. And he wonders how much it costs Teal'c, right from the start, to put his own shit aside and insist on treating the snake as a person. For his sake. For their sake. Because it was that, or a bullet in the head. Hell of a thing. And then, Teal'c bows his head. Gravity and grace. 
for all the world as if he's still sitting on the carpet of SGC's guest quarters, completing the introductions he began back then, or saying goodbye. No way to tell which. He doesn't know which one of them it is who bows in return, either. Not like it matters, in the end. The End of Chapter 7